1: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
2: I'm so used to TV where they're like ready to cut you off so you have to like nod. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having you, you. Heather.
3: You seem really mad about it.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Heather's just stalked out of the studio, so I suppose we have to end today. (laughs)
3: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I am joined by my regular co-host, Dara Lind. Hello. And The Washington Post editorial writer, Heather Long. Hi. Heather's been one of my favorite econ reporters for a long time. Uh, I'm incredibly psyched to have her here to discuss a really important problem, the global food crisis. You may have heard that the Russia-Ukraine war is causing a large-scale disruption to global food markets, uh, particularly in grain, but also in things like fertilizer. Heather and her colleagues at the Post Editorial Board have written a little bit about this, as has uh, Siobhan McDonough here at Vox. We'll link both of them in the show notes. But first, we wanted to back up and explain the overall problem, what the war has actually done to food markets, how it's affecting low- and middle-income countries, and what, if anything, can be done to fix the problem. So, Heather, can you walk me through, just sort of at a very macro level, how the war has affected food markets?
2: Well first of all, thanks for having me. It feels very apt to be talking about this on a <laughs> podcast called The Weeds. Uh, very fair. I brought some extra fertilizer <laughs> for later. Um, you know, obviously this Russian invasion of Ukraine has impacted so much in a humanitarian context. But I think we're just starting to understand what's going on with this global food crisis, which the United Nations is calling the worst potentially since World War II. And that obviously wakes you up. You know, it's not just the worst in 10 years or 20 years. It's the worst since World War II. On a really basic level, Russia and Ukraine are, as you alluded to in the intro, considered some of the world's breadbasket. And you kind of go down... What they produce every year, and it's close to 30 percent of the global wheat trade is coming out of Russia and Ukraine. You know, over half of the trade, global trade in sunflower oil and, and seed that's used by so many people as like a cooking oil, is is coming out of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, also, corn, you know, about 14 percent, barley, about 24 percent, and so. To take even a little bit of what these countries are producing off of the world market is very significant. It's similar, if not worse, than what we've been seeing in the energy market, where Russia was providing, depending upon where you're looking, you know, about ten percent of the energy supply. You know, in this case, they're providing over twenty-five percent of you know, various wheats and commodities on the agricultural side. So. You know, I think part of it, too, is just so much uncertainty about what's going on right now. Obviously, there's uncertainty on the ground and the loss of human life and, you know, sort of who's in control of what regions. But on the agricultural side... Uh, You know, spring is obviously a a big planting season. You know, how much is actually getting in the ground? You hear these different reports on uh, looting of of farms or workers who can't return. Obviously, they're scared, they're nervous. Are you going to go back to the farm and and plant right now? And at the same time, you know, Vladimir Putin is no stranger to how to manipulate grain and food uh, access and global market access, and so... He has and his army have strategically cut off a lot of those key Black Sea ports where 98% or if not all, more was coming of these key agricultural products was leaving Ukraine to go principally to the Middle East and parts of Africa. So anyway, that's a long, long answer to say that at least some, if not all of this grain is not going to get out this spring. There's a huge question of, how much we'll be able to get in the ground. So how much is that going to impact us going down the road? And then on top of that is Russia itself and kind of what's Putin's plan. We all want to get inside his mind right now. And Russia is also a major supplier of fertilizer, one of the world's key you know, fertilizer exporters. And Putin has certainly been very open about the fact that he only wants to trade with friendly <laughs> nations to Russia right now. So then you've got this longer-term question as you stare into sort of 2023 even – you know, what's going to happen with the fertilizer? Are we going to have enough to, and so you're already starting to see farmers in the US and Brazil and other parts of the world start to rethink what crops they want to plant this year as they're trying to adjust to all that's going on. So I'll stop there for a minute. There's a lot more to say, (laughs) but I think that gives us a little bit to chew on right now. So
4: we're talking about things on a few different timescales. Obviously, there's like The war in Ukraine has now probably been a disruption for like three months at this point, say, probably a little less than that. But that's intersecting, as you were explaining, Heather, with the planting season. And, of course, it also, as we've learned over the last couple of years, takes time to transport goods from one place to another. So, like, what phase of the kind of farm-to-table, if you will – how far down the chain are these disruptions that are that are now a few months old really reaching? And, like, to what extent is what we're seeing right now the result of this ongoing crisis versus, you know, something that was already a problem even before this March that people are now worried that the ceiling for how bad it could get has just shot up a whole bunch?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. You're right. Even before – Putin invaded Ukraine, this was already shaping up to be a really tough year for a lot of these developing countries that in, you know, the Egypts and Bangladesh and Tunisia and Lebanon and Yemen. Um, Libya and these sorts of countries uh, were already kind of teetering on would they have enough of some of these core food products. And a lot of that was the ongoing story of inflation around the world. You know, food prices were already up hugely because of big demand coming out of the pandemic. And there were droughts in different parts of the world that weren't helping, like even before you take Ukraine and Russia potentially out of the picture. You know, you're right. It sort of depends country by country. And I think the story of the food supply chain is very similar to the story of every other supply chain we've all suddenly become experts <laughs> on. <laughs> and, and that is, um, you know, a lot of these poor countries think about it like just-in-time delivery of microchips or whatnot. It's similar with the food that if you're some of these developing countries, you don't have, you know, pockets and, and bags and bags of, of grain kind of sitting around waiting to be mm-hmm. shipped. You know you were, you were really reliant on, okay, I'm expecting you know, the Ukraine shipment to come out in June or whatnot or May and come right across the Black Sea and through those channels to me. And then on top of that, you layer, you know obviously Lebanon has an economic crisis or Yemen has its own you know, wars and internal conflicts going on. And on top of that, of course, we layer – there's also an energy crisis. So even just to ship, whether it's from Ukraine let, or let alone trying to get it from somewhere else in the world to these developing countries, it just exacerbates the problem. So I would say the big kind of mother load of data, if you will. <laughs> I'm kind of a data nerd. I know you guys are too. Um, this is the place for it. Yes. <laughs> You know, it's really been the United Nations, both the World Food Program that actually has the job of being on the ground trying to get extra aid and supplies to these various parts of the world. And they were buying huge amounts from Ukraine in particular to feed a lot of parts of Africa and parts of the Middle East. And, um, you know, they're sort of warning already, you know, some of the latest statistics that you know, it's really astounding that, you know, close to 900 million people are already food insecure. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where we're at right now. And the question is how many of those people tip into famine? And and some of that's going to depend on how much of that grain can get out of Ukraine. Maybe it can go somewhere else into Europe and go out of a port that way or on some magical train to go somewhere else. And, you know, how much can actually be supplied from other parts of the world and some of that's again up in the air. And then, of course, how high do these food prices go? Because the U.S. and other nations have been trying to step in with, you know, and give them some credit with a, with some more aid, some more money and financial aid to say, okay, you know, we recognize there's a problem here. We recognize a lot of these countries are going to have to buy more food on the world market, and now it costs, you know, 10, if not 20 percent more. But again. Is that going to be enough to ship something from Brazil all the way over to Yemen or Libya? And I think all this stuff is literally being kind of debated right now.
3: One of the things that was striking to me in, in trying to research this was how much variance there is on on which countries depend on Ukraine and Russia. Um, so just sort of narrowing in on commodities because for fertilizer, it seems like a slightly different story that has to do with like energy costs, like If you're just pulling nitrogen out of the air to make fertilizer, you need a lot of energy. And so sort of availability of fuel seems to matter a lot there. But just looking at like wheat, for instance, I think Ukraine is something like 10 percent of world wheat production, which is a lot, but also doesn't seem like a shattering amount. But if you go through the food and agricultural organizations like list, there are some countries where it's like almost everything in Eritrea, uh, Ukraine and Russia make up basically 100 percent of their wheat imports a lot of ex uh soviet republics georgia azerbaijan kazakhstan but also a lot of like sub-saharan african countries uh benin uh democratic republic of the congo
2: and lebanon i think lebanon is I on that list. somalia
3: it's just it's a really striking list and and really made the point for me that this isn't this isn't like a tweak on the margin that that for some countries this really requires a complete rethinking of how they're getting basic food staples in.
2: Exactly. Yeah. The statistic that stuck in my mind for what it's worth is 50 countries depend on Russia and Ukraine for more than a third of their wheat. Um, And so, you know, you're right. Some of them are even higher as you just outlined. You know, how are you going to change 90% plus? of your supply chain overnight. And um,
3: maybe in if if you're a friendly country like Armenia or, or Kazakhstan, you're still getting your wheat from Russia and you'll be okay. But Somalia, maybe may less so.
2: Exactly. You know, you're already starting to see it. My colleague uh, at the Washington Post was on the ground in Tunisia, David Lynch. He wrote a good piece a few weeks ago. You know, about just standing there watching in Tunisia, you know, at a bakery where people were pounding on the doors and there was literally no more, you know, no more flour. And so they could not make the staple of the diet, this sort of flat bread, um, let alone make any, you know, croissants or anything more exotic. (laughs) Like even just to make kind of the basics, they were already, you know, would shut down for several days. And, you know, you're starting to see riots across the world in places like Peru or Sri Lanka, so this is starting to happen in real time, you know, but you're right. It's like a whack-a-mole problem where it's, you know, who's, who's got it the worst and how can we – how quickly can we get different food products to these different places?
4: How long have, has this dependency been in place? Because, like, I, you know, I, I can tell a plausible story where a lot of this has to do with, like – Cold War affiliations and Ukraine in particular being the breadbasket of the Soviet Union and probably playing a pretty big role in any agricultural aid that the Soviet Union was providing to the, to what was then called the Third World. And if that's the case, then it would make sense that, that these would also be countries that would be pretty reliant on Russia for energy. And in, the, in that case, the food problem and the fuel problem are really going to compound each other where you have neither the money to import food nor the money to spend on fuel to import food nor the money to import fuel. (laughs) But, you know, it's also like you mentioned the United Nations World Food Program, which seems like it is a pretty major buyer in this space and probably also, you know, plays a role here. So maybe that's not as highly correlated with the energy importing. Like, how did it become the case that so many countries became reliant on the wheat fields of Ukraine to satisfy their own domestic hunger.
2: You know, you're 100% right that the fuel and energy crisis is exacerbating everything that's going on here and making it so much harder to to fix this problem. Uh, What I keep in mind is on like a big, big, big picture level, the world is still producing enough food we should not be having people go hungry in the world the problem is just what you're alluding to the food where it's being grown particularly this year is not necessarily able to be shipped you know mm. it's it's these logistical challenges both the cost and the physics of getting it from one place to another that are proving so so difficult right now so you're right that the fuel part of this is important if not more so than the actual growing of crops and kind of what's coming out of the ground. It's interesting what you say about the historical context. I was just speaking with someone earlier today about this, and they reminded me that, you know, if we had been having this discussion in the 80s or early 90s, the vast majority of exports in the food in the world market were coming from the United States and Europe. And that in some ways it's been a huge success story to bring on Brazil, Ukraine, and mm. Russia to be huge parts of the global food market. And, of course, the story we all know so well now, the idea was to get Ukraine and Russia you know being a huge part of the agricultural trade and and with the thinking that this was going to promote global peace and stability and that you know they were going to feel really good about the roles that they that they had and obviously Ukraine certainly did given that Ukraine in particular was is the major supplier to the world food program you know so it, it's kind of a weird story to suddenly be sitting here thinking we diversified wrong, you know, that that maybe, you know, why maybe these, many of these countries have become too dependent on, you know, on Ukraine and, and Russia. So I know that's sort of my, how I think about the big picture in the, in the historical context, but it's a real debate about where we go from here. I know we're going to want to talk more about that later on. Uh, you know, I've certainly been on the phone with a lot of experts and there's hugely varied views about what would need to shift. Like, I think it's a lot more obvious and, you know, like the, when, you, when we're talking about microchips, that right, we, right. maybe where where we need to produce more of those than it is. And then it is what countries should grow more, what role exporters should play versus should we improve growth and crop loads in some of these developing nations themselves that just don't have the technology. I mean, some places you can't grow because right. it's a desert. But other places <laughs> there is a possibility with technological advancements to grow more domestically. And it's not happening because it's been really cheap to depend (laughs) and really easy and really stable to depend on Ukraine for many years.
3: We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to dive a little more into some of those solutions like expanding production in various countries that Heather mentioned and just more generally talk about where we go from here. So stay with us.
4: And we're back. And I'm taking us into the next segment of our conversation with Heather Long because I have a question I really wanted to ask. So, Heather, I'm so glad that you, you know, at the end of the last segment brought up the microchips comparison, because that's really what I'd been thinking about when we have this conversation about supply shocks that have harmed U.S. supply chains. You know, one obvious avenue of solution is like, well, we should be manufacturing more of that stuff here in the United States anyway so that we can be more resilient. And, you know, on the one hand, of course, that does make sense in the food context, especially because most agricultural, like, raw goods spoil more quickly. And so, you know, it's a much more fragile supply chain if, you know, a small disruption can really result in, like, product literally rotting on container ships. But at the same time, in the context of global climate change, it doesn't exactly seem like the most resilient thing in the world to tell countries at equatorial latitudes that are getting, you know, hotter and hotter each year that they are now supposed to be producing more of their own food than when global temperatures were lower. So what does a resilience framework look like here, you know, it, that that recognizes both the, the fact that, like, sometimes global events happen, sometimes one country invades another, but also each year the growing seasons in a lot of
2: countries are getting shorter and shorter. Uh, yeah, I think you and I can make a lot of money if we can
3: have a <laughs> simple, easy,
2: que- you know, easy response to what you're just laying out. And, you know, almost everyone I've spoken to keeps using that ugly word trade-offs. There's a yeah. lot of oh, trade-offs, boy. you know, going forward right now between climate change concerns and between uh, how we create a more stable, I would say, a more stable global food supply system. And I don't know. I'm still grappling this- with this a little bit myself. You know, on the short term, obviously, we're trying to keep people from being in famine, you know, from truly, truly starvation. My generation, I think you all are pretty similar as a millennial. You know, we all remember those photos of the Somali young children from the 90s. And, you know, to have feel like here we are 20 some years later, almost in the same place, you know, just feels like a huge failure as a global community. And we're starting to see a little bit of leadership from the U.S. It is more money for things like the global food program and potentially more crop donations. It's always a little, again, then we get into that how easy is it to transport and is that really the right solution. But, um, you know, the ideal would be to send more money and then have it be able to be bought on the global market. So then it doesn't matter if Brazil had a good year or not or if India is willing to sell some of their excess and their storage capacity you know, it'll just go where the market needs it. There's also some promising developments with potentially the idea, this has just surfaced in the last few days, of whether some of that Ukraine crop, if it can be harvested, could be sent to Poland or Lithuania or Romania. So to try to basically get around the Russian blockade of Ukrainian ports, I think that sounds really interesting. But again, can it happen? What are the costs Is is being debated right now. And then I think you're right. The longer term is really, it's probably going to be a combination. Uh, Some of it will be better technology in countries. There's a lot of really cool innovations with like, I mean, I'm not a farmer, but with growing in vertical greenhouses that's starting to go on, including in urban areas in the United States, but also in parts of like Dubai and parts of the Middle East. So they can, they're never going to be totally self-sufficient, but they can grow more. And in their areas, you know, similarly, One of the things that we haven't brought up in this discussion yet that probably should be thrown out is um, it's really going to be key what China and India do. You know, these are obviously huge populations. Particularly China has totally reshaped the agricultural trade in the past 20 years as their population has gotten richer and they have more demand for meat and just more demand for food generally. And they are not self-sufficient. They're nowhere close to self-sufficient, and they have a lot of money, and they buy a lot of the excess crops. Like right now, the excess U.S. corn in the last few weeks has all almost all been bought up by China, and they've been China has been accused of hoarding right now in the middle of a global food crisis. You know, but obviously, if you're China, you know you're thinking about we have a history in our country of moments of starvation, and we don't want to repeat this right now. And so, Especially um, when, you know, we're
4: we're also still in a global pandemic and that is causing some
2: countries to be concerned about the stability of their, you know, hold on the population. So I think you're right. There may not be, you know, it may not be climate change realistic to have certain parts of sub-Saharan Africa growing more, a ton more than what they can sustain now. But it probably is realistic to have some more parts of China or India do it. And if that would be a huge game changer potentially on, you know, on the world food supply scene.
3: I wanted to talk a bit more about sort of what the U.S. could do just because we're we're here. <laughs> um, it, it seems relevant to us. Um, and we touched on sort of aid to the world food program, just getting more money out there to, to compensate for these rising prices. One thing that that you and your colleagues brought up in your editorial was ethanol, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. We'll can you can you say a bit about how that's affecting sort of the current dynamics and and what changes to our ethanol policy could do?
2: Exactly. That's another back to Dara's point. energy versus food, right. which one do you prioritize <laughs> right now? And obviously Americans are so fixated. I can tell you what price I paid over the weekend to fill up <laughs> on uh, fill up my car. You know, so the decision was made by the Biden administration to increase – normally in the summer you don't put as much ethanol in the gas and, you know, there's various environmental reasons for that. And basically they waived waived that in order to encourage more ethanol use in the gasoline supply over the summer. And so basically to make a long story short, we're going to divert a lot of, you know, corn and soy resources. Instead of selling it as food, we're going to divert it to become a biofuel or an Mm -hmm. ethanol fuel So, you know, the hope is that that's going to bring down a few pennies on the gas price. Realistically, on our editorial board and many other people are very skeptical at how much of an impact that's really going to have. At the same time, it is very clear it will have an impact on food supply. Some of these critical resources, particularly corn, uh, that are probably needed right now. Somebody was reminding me, a farmer friend was reminding me that corn is more fertilizer-dependent than soy. So you're, you know, that they're actually very worried about the future, you know, the future few next few months or next year of corn as as those other problems are coming down the way with the Russian (laughs) fertilizer and whether there'd be enough fertilizer. So, you know, to put it bluntly, the Biden administration made a short-term bet here, you know, that the oil price was more important, that the domestic situation was more important than you know, then this global situation and this, you know, I think they're hoping they can fix something in the medium term. But I, I wouldn't say that any, you know, we're, we're all still waiting for um, Cinderella to, <laughs> and her fairy godmother to show up and fix this. So, To what
4: extent is this something that, like, we can— tech our way out of. like I was so struck when you said that this could be the worst since World War II because the received understanding that I have as a medium to high information person who listens to what Dylan Matthews says is that in the 20th century with the Green Revolution, the world like really leveled up in terms of agricultural carrying capacity to a point where it seemed that famine had been vanquished (laughs) and that obviously like there are clearly non-ecological reasons why things are happening right now but like it does seem that further innovation in that space could be possible is this something that like you know do we think that the ceiling for like another green revolution could kind of help with some of the diversification stuff we're talking about or have we kind of tapped out on that and now it really does need to be about just improving like efficiencies in the supply chain and trying to promote stability in countries so that a globally integrated market isn't disrupted by one country deciding to invade another.
2: Yes, I love where you're going with this. Okay, so I'll do the usual economist on the one hand, on the other hand. So the, po- <laughs> you know, the positive answer to your, and I was speaking recently with someone who would have just hugged you right now <laughs> and been like, yes, you know, technology is an answer both on the ability there's, you know been huge revolutions in, in agriculture in how we grow things and our ability our, – basically our productivity has mm-hmm. just gone through the roof in agriculture. And you can see it in the United States and the European Union and Australia and sort of the advanced world. So both on the actual crop side technology, we've made huge advancements and we're able to do so much more with so much less acreage. Also, I love this company called Grow Intelligence. I will don't usually shill for companies, right. but this is a great startup <laughs> in the last sort of decade by a woman from Kenya who used to be a commodity trader. It's named Sarah Menker. And she realized when she was trading agricultural commodities that it's bizarre that we live in this world now, which is so technologically advanced, and yet we don't really have good real-time data on how are crops doing mm. and where are the famine problems. You know, it's like it was surprisingly difficult to get this data. And so she spent the past few years, she and her team, literally putting together, you know, using various GPS and satellite data to map the entire world of crops. You know, this company, among others, have done it too, now have we have pretty good real-time data. So if there's suddenly a drought problem or we can see, you know, she can see and others can see how are those crops looking in, you know, Nebraska or mm-hmm. whatnot, you know, is this gonna be a good year or not compared to normal? And so you're right, both on the actual growing of things and sort of knowing what the supply is actually likely to be in the next few weeks or where the needs are in the next few weeks has advanced hugely. It's a very different conversation even than five years ago. So you're right. All of those things could make you very optimistic that we can sort of innovate our way out of a lot of these problems. And that's even beyond, you know, the, like, really cool stuff going on with various vertical greenhouses and growing things on water, you know, out in the ocean and stuff. On the negative, you know, (laughs) the negative side, just sort of be the usual economist type – The negative version of this is while a lot of the developed world has advanced in all of these technologies, we have also basically farmed out, literally farmed out, more of our farming to the developing world. You know, there was just a story in the Washington Post to put my own paper uh, you know, about about Brazil and you know, the ongoing debates about deforestation in Brazil and, and a lot of this is driven by the United States and I would also argue China and our endless consumption for meat and you know the need to grow more of the corn feed so we can feed these animals and so, while we might think that we're doing all these wonderful things to innovate and to reduce our carbon footprint in our countries, we've basically just shipped the problem somewhere else. And that's, you, know, you can, it's very evident in the European Union, too. You know, that for all they like to pound their chest and say, oh, you know, we're green and we're so innovative and forward thinking, there's a reason they don't grow a lot as nearly as much as they used to, and that they're major importers now from a poorer countries.
3: So. Well, having solved the global food crisis, <laughs> or, or at least hopefully uh, edified you a little bit about this, uh, we're going to take one more break. But when we're back, Heather, Dara, and I are going to talk about a uh, paper that helps explain sort of some of the fragilities in the global food market and, and helps us make sense of some of the dynamics we've been talking about. So stay with us.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— V-A-N-29.com.
5: Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere.
3: You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet.
5: This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how?
3: And we're back. So this week's white paper is from the Journal of Development and Agricultural Economics, and it's called The Diversification of Global Agribusiness Trade from 2000 to 2019. It's by three economists based in Brazil, uh, Cenzia Cabral da Costa, uh, Neil Sundergaard, and Marcos sawaya Yank. And as the title suggests, the paper is trying to estimate how diverse the agricultural imports and exports of a selection of countries around the world is. It doesn't work at literally every country. That would be sort of by enough more than it can shoot, but it's a very representative in particularly developed countries. The paper has a lot of these fascinating little tidbits about the market for agricultural products for food. But one of the most interesting takeaways, which sort of touches on something we've been saying in our conversation about the current crisis is that a lot of developing countries don't have particularly well-diversified agricultural sectors. So they tend to be very reliant on regularly exporting and importing a pretty small number of commodities. And that can leave them very vulnerable, as we've seen, to something like the war in Ukraine disrupting the market for one or more of those commodities. So, Heather, you recommended this paper uh, to us. What did you get from it? How has this been sort of informing how you think about the the current situation?
2: Yeah, I got attached to this idea about whether we need to diversify more the global food supply. And I have to give some credit to the chief economist at the United Nations World Food Program, RF Hussein, has been tweeting a lot about this. Uh, He's tweeted out a great graphic that was showing... You know, seven countries make up almost 90 percent of global wheat exports or um, five countries make up almost 80 percent of what's known as coarse grain. Four countries make up 85 percent of global corn exports. And it's kind of mind boggling. I mean, you think about all the discussions we've had about energy and the impact of OPEC. You know, there's more countries in OPEC Mm -hmm. that are exporting energy and oil um, than there are exporting corn and wheat So, you know, on a fundamental level, you kind of scratch your head and say, well, wouldn't it make sense to just have a little bit more growth and exports happening from different different parts of the world? It's a really good debate, and I've been having this debate with a lot of different economists and agricultural experts, and, and this paper sort of goes to it. It shows you just how concentrated it is, and, you know, as most stories in the global economy, a lot of... Richer nations have done a much better job of diversifying where they're buying from, and China, in particular, has has continued to is really the the game changer in the last twenty years. And this paper does a nice job of showing, you know, just what an outlier they are in terms of their ability to buy. You know, they'll scoop up pretty much anything they can take from anybody for a pretty good price. But obviously, these poorer countries that are struggling to even be able to buy the basic needs or, or not, you know, have done a pretty terrible job. It goes right back to the top of this conversation. They're almost 100% reliant on Ukraine. And that's obviously been a huge problem. So, you know, I think it's, an, but it's an interesting debate. What would it take to get other countries to grow? Should we be doing this for environmental or other reasons? Somebody reminded me that, honestly, if we really wanted to diversify and grow more, One of the easiest things to do would be to take a lot of land in the United States that has been put in conservation programs that used to be used as agricultural land. You know, but again, this is controversial. Is this really what we want to be doing? You know, probably not. I can see Dara sort of tensing. You can't (laughs) see her face. (laughs) She's looking at me like, "Mm, no. As the late great Jane
4: Jane Koston used to say, podcasting is a very visual
0: medium.
2: (laughs) You know, but anyway, so I thought this paper did a pretty good job of of walking through. They also um, spend a lot of time thinking about trade agreements and how some of that has played into the ability of particularly developing nations to both grow their own exports as well as diversify their own imports. Needless to say, it hasn't gone very well for most of those countries that are not rich countries. But again, it's this ongoing debate. I think... For me, the takeaway from thinking about this a lot in the last two months is I think we can solve the short-term problem. You know, if we really, as a global community, put our minds together, you know, we can find the money and we can get the crops that are already wherever they are right now to the hands of people who really need it. Now, there's obviously some conflict places, like can we get it Mm -hmm. everywhere in Yemen? No, you know, probably not, or parts of Somalia are going to be difficult, but on a basic level, we know what it takes to solve the short-term problem. The medium to long-term problem, I think, is much, much more difficult to debate of, you know, do you rely on the technological innovations to save the day? Do you rely on China and India growing more and sort of becoming more self-sufficient in agricultural? Do you rely, you know, some people, these are my Wall Street marketing friends, yeah. <laughs> were like, well, you could create a contract where – You know, you could sort of lock in, you know, stability is the key, right? So is there a way we can incentivize Russia, basically, to be a more stable player and supplier in this world going forward? And, you know, we're sort of all chuckling, like, you know, do you really want to make a deal with Putin? But, you know, that's sort of another option on the table is to say, okay, we've already got enough supply, we just need to make it stable. You know, or this fourth idea that was the chief economist at the World Food Program's really been flagging, do we really, as a global community, need like many, many supply chains we're rethinking, need to rethink where we are producing food and you know, who the major suppliers are? Well,
3: and it's interesting, sort of talking about predictability as something that the market needs, that agriculture is one of the more futures-heavy markets in the world, that that they have this whole financial innovation meant to provide that kind of security and consistency. And it's, it's really failed in this moment um, in a way that that took me by surprise. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on why that might be, but but it, it's talking about making a deal that could sort of secure prices going forward. It seems like our private sector attempts to make that deal have, have fallen short, at least up to, to this point.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, you know, we could tick through the list <laughs> of com- agricultural commodities that are currently trading at or near all-time highs. and. Another statistic from our friends at the United Nations is that, broadly speaking, food prices are at the highest they've ever recorded. And they started really tracking the global food price in 1990. And it doesn't always make sense. I mean, that's what's interesting when you start to talk to people like the Grow Intelligence folks who are, you know, sort of telling you where the actual crop yields are. And again, like it, it's, I had to sort of remind myself that it's not that there literally aren't enough crops right now, even if you took Ukraine off the um, supply chain for a bit. It's, it's really that we as a global community can't seem to get them to the right place. So I don't know, you make an interesting point about what role the markets are playing. I would also um, remind you, though, that not only have they done a terrible job right now, but as many of my farming friends remind me, you know, how many dairy farms have we lost in this country in the past decade? You know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and, and there's you know, it's just been a decimation in Wisconsin and PA, you know, suicides of farmers, particularly in the dairy industry. And a lot of this is because these markets also do a horrendous job of regulating when the price crashes. And for much of the last decade, the price has been so low that it hasn't incentivized a ton more production. And now we're in this problem where we could really use some extra production. And it's, you know, it's not something we can just flip the light switch on, you know, unfortunately. So um, so you're right. It's not, I don't know. I wish <laughs> yeah. I, I knew the solution. Maybe it's maybe it's something with the crypto or the blockchain. <laughs> yes.
3: No, definitely the way out of this is the blockchain, if I know anything <laughs> about, about that and promises based on it.
4: The one thing that kind of structures the author's analysis of this paper, that they're doing an economistic on the one hand, on the other hand on. And so I wanted to to get y'all's thoughts on was the role that free trade agreements have played in diversifying or not diversifying the agricultural imports of various countries. Because like anyone who has followed the development of a given free trade agreement knows that ag is a sector in which even the most free trade countries can get protectionist about their own domestic, you know, and trying to protect their own exporters while Also trying to protect their domestic food supply from getting undercut by import prices. So you can make an argument, obviously, that like a global trend toward free trade is going to open up more potential trading partners and allow for more diversification. You can also make an argument that, you know, especially in ag where – commodity by commodity is getting negotiated in each individual agreement, that it just kind of locks you into a set number of partners that you've negotiated particularly good terms with. What role do you guys think the trade agreements have played in all of this? And is that somewhere, you know, is that another potential avenue for making this a more stable market going forward?
2: I think you're right in the sense that despite, I'm just thinking back to the last several years of having to cover what was formerly known as NAFTA, now (laughs) USMCA, and the amount of time and there's, you know, entire chapter basically devoted to the dairy trade between Quebec, Canada, and Wisconsin, United States. (laughs) You know, you're right. A lot of this goes to even when you have these free, basically, my takeaway is even when you've got this free treatment agreement in place, almost all countries continue to subsidize agriculture. And it is probably baffling in this conversation we've gotten this far. We haven't talked about subsidies that, yeah. that go yeah. on in uh, in various parts of, of agriculture. So I don't know. Obviously, nobody so far has really figured out how to make those go away. And honestly, I would say I think this latest sh- you know, Russia war in Ukraine and the instability there is going to make people even more weary to take away those subsidies and to take away those protectionist instincts because the answer would be, well, but you can get what you need on the global market and now you can't get what you need or the partners you thought were reliable are not. And so I I think, you know, we're in uh, that sort of, again, is one of these compounding the dangers going forward. I, and I will say the other one that a lot of farmers remind me of is it's so difficult to predict the price, you know, almost even harder than predicting energy price, which is no <laughs> no easy feat there, is to predict what a lot of these crop prices are going to be going forward. You know, again, that really dictates you know, a lot of this protectionism we you know can shake our finger at, but you got to keep this farmers in business and the years when it's not great in the hopes that you don't get in a situation where your country will be in starvation.
3: That's all for us today. Um, Thank you so much to Darland and Heather Long for joining the panel, especially Heather. Uh, It's great to have you on The Weeds.
2: Thanks for having me. I guess my takeaway is eat less meat.
3: That's always my takeaway here as the radical vegetarian on The Weeds. (laughs) Our producer is Sophie Lalonde, Uh, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor, Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director for Talk Podcasts, and I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. Did you know The Weeds has a newsletter? Dara writes it. It's great. Go to vox.com slash weedsletter to sign up. We will be back in your feeds next week with another panel episode, so we will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.